is Dot. Before we start today's episode, I want to do a bit of housekeeping. As we announced last week, Inside My Favorite Manuscript is now a weekly podcast. So watch out for new episodes every Tuesday and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. You want to be sure not to miss it. We've also started a mailing list. For now, this will be a weekly newsletter to announce new and upcoming podcast episodes. But in the future, who knows what we might do with it. We'll never sell it, though, so anything you get from there will be directly from us. I will put a sign-up link in the show notes if you want to sign up for that. As a reminder, you can find full show notes, including images, on our Tumblr, inside my favorite manuscript.tumblr.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, so you can search for us there. And you can look for the IMFMPod hashtag on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. We have been getting so much feedback, and it's just great to know that people are listening and enjoying the show. So let's get on with it and listen to our next episode. Hello, everyone. This is Dot. And you are listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people about the manuscripts they love the most. Today, I'm joined by Emily Friedman, Associate Professor of English at Auburn University. Emily's research interests are vast and range from book history to fan work to live streaming tabletop role-playing games. She is the director of 18th Connect, a site that aggregates information about primary and secondary digitized texts on the long 18th century. And she has also published a book on the language of describing smell. I am really excited that Emily has taken the time to talk with me today. Welcome, Emily. Let's talk about a manuscript or manuscripts, I think. Yes, there's so many. It's so exciting. And I think one of the purposes of my work in manuscript fiction is precisely to say there's not one example from this period after the rise of print in the 18th and 19th century, but to say, hey, there's lots of them. Let's take a look and figure out how we can talk about them in more thoughtful ways. So you said manuscript fiction. Mm-hmm. So we're looking, we're going to be looking at fi- like fiction stories, like novels. What are, what yeah. are we doing today? Yeah. So this started in, oh gosh, um, 2009. I was at Chotten House Library. It was the month that the entire like island was covered in snow and they ran Ooh. out of salt. Um, oh dear. Yeah. So, so we were <laughs> snowed in together and we didn't have the kind of excursions normal, normal fellows went on. We couldn't even go to the grocery store on our own. And so we had lots of time to basically pull up anything that seemed of interest in this little house library. Mm-hmm. And so I basically asked for all of the manuscripts that were held, which there weren't that many. And all of a sudden I found all on my desk, a rather large codex bound book, um, kind of slightly oversized to what we would uh, expect today, probably about 12 inches tall. Mm -hmm. And I open it up and it looks like print. Um, The 
It has a title page that is arranged the way late 18th, early 19th century title pages are with block letters. And it reads, The Life of Frederick Harley, a novel most humbly dedicated to Mrs. Richard Minchin with a faux imprint, uh, a publishing date that says Dublin 1799. And it has a little epigraph tag, Celestial Happiness, when e'er she stoops to visit visit earth, one shrine the goddess finds, and one alone to make her sweet amends for absent heaven, the bosom of a friend, where heart meets heart, reciprocally soft, each other's pillow to repose divine. And then we see later that someone has written in underneath Mrs. Richard Minchin by Lady Catherine Howard. And so we know exactly who wrote this and we know who received it. Mm-hmm. And the novel is very straightforward, not especially artistically ambitious, but we can see the sign of a later hand annotating it and, and making parallels to uh, who I believe is Mariah Minchin's life and mm-hmm. little, it's not quite, um, I think, a Romana Clay, you know, a novel with a key, but it is uh, drawing a little bit of inspiration from her life um, in this work by this author. And it became my obsession. Uh, I mm-hmm. was writing a dissertation on endings. I then wrote a book on smell, but all along the way, I was collecting more of these examples. And I was trying to find out what I could when there were names attached. So the manuscripts I brought today all have at least one person that we know that we can tell a little bit of the story about. Mm -hmm. In the case of Frederick Harley, it took a while to find Mrs. Richard Minchin, as you might imagine. There's lots of Richard Minchins. There's lots of Mm -hmm. Minchins. Marriage records are weird, but ultimately I was able to find that Lady Catherine and Mariah appear in the early censuses living together in their old age. Oh my gosh. Yeah. In fact, I was ultimately able to find both of their wills and all of the movable property, all of the things that she was legally able to bequeath of her own volition, Lady Catherine left to Mariah Minchin. Um, Yeah, which is amazing. You know, Mm -hmm. she's in the peerage and Mariah is very hard to find. But Mariah also had her will go through probate and uh, only a few years later. And she she seems to have left no living children. She leaves everything to her nibblings, her nieces and nephews. Mm -hmm. And she specifically mentions Lady Catherine, her her benevolent her beloved friend. And one of her final requests is that they be buried side by side. Um, oh my gosh. Her remains. Yeah. And the church where that uh, apparently is, is now an evangelical church. So not connected to the church of England. So we've, it's mm-hmm. been a little bit of a, a task to try to find if that crypt still exists and get, whether we get access or not, especially with COVID. Right. But uh, I, I hope, I hope very much that Mariah got her wish So the story inside the manuscript is almost secondary to the story about Mm -hmm. the manuscript. 
script. This, you know, several hundred page work of love uh, that right. uh, that was that was given, which is yeah, I just love. Uh, I love that. I love that, and and I think it's really easy for me, at least, to make a comparison to. I mean, we still do this today, um, thinking about the way that fandom, mm-hmm. you know, the fandom works in fan fiction. And one of the things that you can do if you if you write fan fiction these days, you normally publish it on a website called Archive of Our Own. And one of the things that that you can do is is present a present a story as a gift. And so it's very common to write stories of that your friends are interested in, you know, or whatever, like you're in this small group. And so I, so it feels like it's a sort of a similar, very human thing. Like I want to make you something that I hope that you will love. And, and so, and so here it is. And, and the fact that it's a, she's written it all by hand and yet it, it looks like a printed book. That's also very interesting yeah. to me. Yeah, we've gotten to the point in paper technology where you can have kind of a blind wove style of chain lines that that are so visible to the naked eye that you can mm. write along them kind of like a oh. ruled sheet of paper. It's very strong horizontal blind weave in the paper. So you know, she was, it was facilitated. It was a pre-bound book. So she Mm -hmm. doesn't fill up the whole paper. Um, She doesn't have this bound afterwards, but she's taking advantage of this late 18th century moment where blank books are more available. And she's Mm -hmm. an aristocrat with at least some means because she's able to buy a rather like substantial uh, book. A lot of these manuscripts including ones that I read at Shotton 10 years later when I went back and they'd acquired more stuff were mm-hmm. in these like kind of almost like composition book style mm-hmm. blank books with marbled covers and very and printed ruled lines that folks could use. It's a lovely piece. And I, I, I was so puzzled by it because everything I had read up to that point in the history of manuscript studies, um, you know, manuscript publication, you know, what Love and Ezel and everyone tell us is that when print, quote unquote, democratizes and becomes commercial and becomes more widely available and more people are entering the world of print, that everything that was attached to manuscript circulation and publication kind of become vestigial, become Mm -hmm. something that people don't use anymore. It's no longer the choice between manuscript circulation as the prestige thing versus print as the dirty thing. No print is everything. Mm -hmm. But what I've discovered along with other scholars like Michelle Levy and, and others is that no, this still remains a viable way of circulating your material when what you're looking for is not mass audience, either mm-hmm. because you're trying to do something experimental or because you're trying to do something intimate. And it's not just young people. It's not just teenagers. We know that Lady Catherine was almost 30 when she wrote this to her married friend. Um, so this is an adult doing an adult activity. 
And uh, that's been what's really been fascinating to me. And I love that you connect this to fan fiction, because for me, this is this is not fan fiction. Frederick Harley, mm-hmm. as far as I know, is not a literary figure that she's right, like right. on, although that would be awesome. But <laughs> the same things that we see in the fan tradition now have this longer history mm-hmm. and it's not just, Oh, we've always been remixing stories. Mm-hmm. John Milton was a fan fiction writer and uh, no, he wasn't, but mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I don't know that we want to call John Milton a fanboy. but the practices of saying, I'm going to be selective about my audience. I'm going to be thoughtful about how mm-hmm. I choose to circulate my work. And that commercial print doesn't serve me is something that many communities have have mm-hmm. found about their work, you know, for a very long, for as long as there has been a commercial book market. Mm-hmm. And I think, and that's why the working title of this book about these manuscripts is called Before Fan Fiction, to kind of tie it to that long and I think beautiful tradition. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point because we do at least when I think about people people who talk about the history of fan fiction do tend to talk about you know Milton and <laughs> other and sh- even shit like Shakespeare for remixing it's it usually does focus on that on that textual part of it and not so much on the 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 community aspect yeah. of it and so I think I like that you're you're there. I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, this is a little bit of my rant that's coming out in 18th century fiction in the future in a special issue on refusing 18th century fictions. And one mm-hmm. of the fictions I'm having us refuse is this kind of easy way of talking about fan fiction as opposed to transformative works, which 18th century studies literally has never used the phrase transformative work in scholarship, uh, mm-hmm. which is bonkers yeah Um, but you can't have fan fiction and i realize this is a digression folks but bear with me you can't have fan fiction until you have a literary community that is rejecting what fan fiction does right Mm -hmm. and so what's really Mm -hmm. fascinating is that yes fan fiction has a very is part of a very long very old tradition of what we might call, you know, of transformation and response in these kinds of ways. And there is things that I think we could identify as modern fan fiction happening in, say, the 18th century. Samuel Richardson had people who sent him, like, improved endings to his (laughs) novels. Mm -hmm. um, And they were very clearly fan-derived. But a lot of what we talk about isn't informed by that kind of fanish right. practice and that's right. like a real annoying like i'm trying to imagine seriously john milton as as a fanboy and i'm yeah. and that's not what he's trying to do he's trying mm-hmm. to do something at the center of power not kind of go yay right. and so that's one of the things that this project has really made me kind of have us seriously think about is like we can't get back into people's heads, but we can see the objects they produced. And some of the right. things that I found are indeed fan work. There's a really famous political trial. Uh, it's the trial of the century in some ways in the 18th century, the Warren Hastings trial. He was the governor general of India. He was brought forward for various um, kind of controversies during the kind of colonial project in India. 
And so in his retirement, he writes Samuel Richardson fan fiction. Uh, which oh, is my. Great. <laughs> yeah, it's about seven pages. And it's that kind of fiction where you're like, oh, is it a parody? You uh-huh. have to know something extremely well to parody it in the way that Hastings yeah. is doing. And that goes and we have that because everything Hastings wrote, all of his papers were archived. He's a powerful dude. And so this is, you know, not saved because of what it is, but because it's in all of the other things that he's got. And that's a treasure to me because it, you know, continues to provide evidence that the people who are doing this are not all young. They're not all female. They're not all without power. Um, Mm -hmm. That there's lots of reasons why you might, you know, write something for pleasure and not have it circulate publicly. Right. Right. Very cool. So I, part of me wants to, because you said that you have more manuscripts to talk about and part of me wants to move on, but I'm also, I'm so curious about these two women. Yes. Involved their relationship in this. um, Me too. Book. I think that's, I think that's so great. And so there was the lady who was yeah. part of the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. And then who was this? I want to know, I want to know who this other woman is. I want to know how they met. I want to know how they got to be such great friends. I want, you know, they lived together when they were elderly. I just, I love them so much. Like, how much do you know about them? Very little. Very I mean, basically what I've, what I've given you is what we have from the record, from the historical record, right? Like what mm-hmm. survives of them is, as with many women, or actually, and they're pretty powerful because their their wills were in probate, right? And many mm-hmm. women wouldn't even survive there in the historical record. And so we have those traces of the end of their life and the way that they moved their valuables around. And we have them appearing because they lived long enough to enter the 19th century. So we see them pop up in the census in this way. And we mm-hmm. have this object uh, that... I regret to inform you, we don't have a whole lot of provenance about. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically, I was able to work forward using those probate records to get us through to when it passes into more of a collector's hands in the end of the 19th century. And then there's a huge gap before it is brought to Chotten House Library. Mm -hmm. And in part, that's because the way that Chotten House Library was built was it was built by a single extremely wealthy private collector who is still living, who is, I believe she's a dame of the British Empire now uh, for her service to women's writing. And she, in the 90s, purchased an enormous amount of material, rose the price of of Mm. work on women's writing uh, in the market kind of irrevocably, which is really powerful and astonishing, Mm. and made this library out of Jane Austen's brother's inherited estate. So Jane Austen has a brother who's adopted into the Knight family because they don't have an an heir of their own. This is very common in the 18th century. So he becomes wealthy and powerful. He has what is now uh, Chotten House. The Jane Austen Cottage Museum is right across the street because that's where she would stay. And the huge library, which which folks are recollecting kind of virtually is being reassembled online. So we know this is where Austin spent a lot of her time. And the Knight family continues to hold the land, but this benefactress basically has a very long lease 
renovated the main house and turned it into a library. And then uh, a fellowship program was started. And so basically we, this book comes to Chotten, but because it comes from one collector who's very famous and who is still an active collector, we don't have the receipts because right. the receipts are privately held. So we don't know when it was purchased, where it was purchased, for how much, and the kind of provenance leading back. Um, mm-hmm. I have not pushed this extremely far at this particular moment because I've been able to figure out almost a century of its life uh, yeah. without kind of being an annoying person. Um, but this <laughs> is the challenge when you're working with this kind of material, right? Is that you've got, uh, sometimes you're going to find it in private hands, some of the information is not going to be available for you to share or to even potentially know uh, Mm -hmm. for better and for worse, mostly worse, mostly worse. Wow. Okay. So that's great. It's amazing that you figured out even that much being able to go into the historical record though. Yeah. I mean, and I have to say it took a long, long time just to find the confirmed will of who I believe is Mariah Minchin. I have this notes file of all of the possible women and why it might work and why it might not. And all of these Mm -hmm. sorts of things. It's, uh, it's wild, but trying and, but finding her maiden name impossible has been impossible so far. Mm -hmm. She doesn't match quite with any of the mentions that I've been able to find. Right. So well, well good luck. <laughs> good you. luck with finding out more. Uh, I, I look forward to, to finding out more. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's look at another book or talk about, yeah. talk about another one. Yeah. So um, we're, we're staying in the gift realm and I'm going to talk a little bit about a book where we don't know who wrote it, but we do know who received it. And this is The Navy Officer or True Blue Will Never Stain. And it's held at the National Library of Scotland. And so when you pull it up, it has been protectively boxed in a nice bright green box. And it is two full calf bound manuscripts. Um, mm-hmm. They were bound after the fact. Uh, so there's a lot of trimming and a, and it's very tight in the center near the spine in the gutter. Mm-hmm. It is elaborately bound. Uh, so full calf, it's got gilt all over. It's got little red kind of motifs on the spine. It has the Navy officers stamped on each of the spines of the two volumes it, it, that are containing in it. And each are marked volume one and two. Okay. Are we going to have be able to have photos? Because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that neither of these are digitized. But Yes. For the show notes, we have plenty of photos. Because really lovely and really difficult part of doing this work is sometimes I'm able to have this stuff digitized, right? And sometimes mm-hmm. it's me, in this case, in the basement of the National Library of Scotland, they they were like, oh, this is super fragile. It wasn't. It was just pretty tight. We need you uh-huh. to be in the like cube farm of right. the curators, which is actually, I was less supervised because no one mm-hmm. could the cubicle walls um, in order to photograph the entire thing, uh, which uh-huh. took the better part of, of a day. 
So if anybody's a super nerd, this is MS2044 um, at the National Library of Scotland. And we know it was written sometime in the late 18th century for Elizabeth Mackenzie Mingus of Kuldaris. And what's really weird about it is in the middle of this narrative, there's an, a huge digression about the Douglas cause, which was a famous inheritance case that a woman who was considered to be too old to have natural children married, quote, late in life and ran off to France with a even older husband. And they returned with twin boys who they said were their children and their heirs. And the family was the larger family was very insistent that that could not possibly be the case. A huge Mm -hmm. lawsuit ensued. And so this novel contains information about that lawsuit because Elizabeth Mackenzie Mingus was also at the center of an inheritance uh, fight at the time that this novel was written. Oh, that's um, interesting. She was part of a 1785 Talsey case, which is the Scottish version of an inheritance uh, kind of what we would think of some somewhat like an entail, if you know your Pride and Prejudice, like the chain of inheritance mm-hmm. that's like locked in. One of the kind of inflection points or one of the points of contention was that this was the Caldaris family estate that was being fought over. So ha- addressing her as of Caldaris in the manuscript is a is a is a claim of support. Right. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. she appears in a 1777 court case after she marries as Beresford. So we know this is before the the court cases really get rolling and it's before she gets married. She's married to a city of Dublin banker during this. And she's basically she's unsuccessful. The Douglas cause uh, goes in favor of the heir in the in Elizabeth's case. She's dispossessed of all the entailed property. No. Yeah. It went to the House of Lords, to the Court of Sessions. And basically the key legal question was whether her grandfather was the first heir or the person who initiated this entail Talsey and whether he had the ability to break it to name her father as heir. Mm-hmm. And so we've got these two uh, real life Scottish inheritance cases included in this narrative. And so what's most fascinating to me about the Navy officer for my purposes is that it mm-hmm. starts out with this transcribed uh, or this, uh, this note to Elizabeth saying, this can't be published. This novel is just for you. And it's almost imagined as a didactic novel to help her Mm -hmm. get through this harrowing legal experience. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's this story of Caroline Hawthorne and her cousin, Mariah. Caroline is the heiress presumptive and Mariah is the poor orphaned cousin Caroline is the heroine, but then it's corrected at the end. Uh, they're both in love with the same man. Hmm. And uh, so, and it, it seems like he's in love with Caroline, but then he uh, marries the faithful Mariah. 
Mariah's also involved in an inheritance thing because her mother had a mesalliance. It's 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 all like it's two volumes of mess, right? It uh-huh. is. I in my notes here, I have there's a lot of dude hugging. Uh, so there's <laughs> that in there, and at the end, you see that Caroline is the beneficiary of a broken entail to bring fortune to her marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a really fascinating kind of way that it's. It's not really a Romana Clay. It's not a novel with a key that's telling a, a secret history. It's it's trying to imagine a brighter future than what actually happens to Elizabeth in the mm-hmm. end. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's a fascinating and weird book that was then put presumably after its composition was put into this elaborate binding. Um, unclear mm-hmm. on exactly when that binding happens. Yeah, that was going to be my question is if we knew if it was the it was Elizabeth who received it, right? Yes, Elizabeth yeah. receives it. And it's in quartos. It's in very, you know, standard size. It's not blank books. It's mm-hmm. custom bound. And the and the binding seems to uh, just, you know, from a initial examination, seems very in line with a late 18th century binding that it would have right. either been bound by the creator and presented in this fashion. Although what's striking to me is it's so tight. It's right. so t- it's it's so tight. It's very difficult to photograph. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to read. So I I, I want to think that Elizabeth didn't read it in this format, but I, right. I could, obviously I could be wrong. Um, right. It could have had paper. Like I'm thinking it probably had paper paper i mean maybe it was bound in another way and then it was bound like this yeah and what's interesting is that uh and and this is this is a book that uh one of the reasons why i was supervised is it's considered fragile because one of the the front boards has has come completely off Mm -hmm. and so it's possible that we have some end leaves that have have also been lost at some point in the process but the the text block in the first volume starts with no kind of and nothing beyond the letter to Elizabeth. So there's um, not it, like a title page like the other one. Has. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it 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 is does not have those kinds of features. Um, which is strange considering how elaborate it is in every other way. It has marbled end pages. It has this incredibly beautiful binding, um, or at least it was beautiful. The the years mm-hmm. have not been kind to this this particular object in terms of its wear, which is which is also striking, right? Like uh, this is a book that shows signs that it has been handled um, mm-hmm. and used, but in very particular kinds of ways, which is to say, it's not a broken spine, the text block is still pretty tight. But the boards have been through the wards, almost as if that that those first pages of the the letter have been the most heavily read of the of the document in its current form. Mm -hmm. If it's that tightly bound, it sounds like it's probably would be difficult to read if you can't, if it's hard to sort of open it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, my notes have this like place where we like look closer in the gutter. Also it's been trimmed as often happens to manuscripts when they're bound. 
you know, they're put together as a text block, they're trimmed for the binding. And there is, there's not a, like, there's not a horrific amount compared to other manuscripts I've seen, but a pen would not normally run to the edge of the paper in that way. So it's very clearly been trimmed more tightly across the top than the, than the bottom, at least in terms of what's left. But uh, there are places where it's, it's pretty tight on both. And you'll see like a chapter, like chapter one's big elaborate kind of chapter one is, is cut off in the first like quarter. Um, Yeah. So yeah. So it's, it's interesting to try to think about, you know, when was this read when was this preserved in this elaborate form that then makes it not impossible to read, but a little that just a little bit more difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with this tight, with this tighter binding and this this neat trim that makes it seem like this manuscript ultimately was tal- a talisman more than a reading mm-hmm. experience, right? Yeah, and that I'm thinking again about the the people involved and the relationship between these people and so there's the the presumably it's a woman who wrote it we don't i don't assume don't know. honestly yeah <laughs> yeah and then elizabeth who who received it and like i'm thinking to myself like why if you you have a friend who's going through a thing and so i'm going to write you what sounds kind of like a like a there's romance involved so because there's like this love triangle so i'm going to write you this like Maybe probably not spicy, right? Because it's not the time for spice, but but you know, some kind of you've got this stuff going on, and then but it's also about this thing you're going through, you know, mm-hmm. like like it and I just that's just so that's just so neat. Cause like if I was going through a thing, would I want my friend to write me a story about somebody else going? Maybe I would. I don't know, somebody else going through the same thing. It's trying definitely, to make me feel better. It's very yeah. weird. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, to use fan fiction tropes, right? It's, there's definitely a fair amount of hurt comfort, right? Like mm-hmm. she gets, the the Carolyn gets this like fever, almost death scene, but she gets better, those sorts of things. Um, uh-huh. There's, there's, uh, there's the dude hugging, but there's also the fainting um, that is uh-huh. very, you know, we're in the late 18th century. We're in the, we're still kind of in the vestiges of the sentimental. What's interesting, mm-hmm. right, is we don't exactly know when this was precisely written, we can estimate based on that Elizabeth is not being referred to as her married name so that Mm -hmm. we can guess that it's probably not. uh, So the national library of Scotland has it, you know, brackets 1800, because that's what they're guessing um, without any kind of specific evidence that they're providing. I would put it before 1795 because we know that's when she gets married and it's and right. so it would have to be before her married name before that. unless the author is very explicitly trying to say something about like maybe she didn't maybe they didn't like her husband but I don't think that's the right. case I think it's this case was going from the 1770s on so mm-hmm. you know so it could have been as early as the mm-hmm. 1770s yeah and for the kind of heightened sentimentality would be very mm-hmm. in line with material from the 70s. It's the the vogue for the sentimental starts to wane in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it wouldn't persist in a private document like this. Obviously, there's official publishing trends and then there's what people are actually reading and enjoying for much longer. 
Uh, and that's actually one of the things that I find most interesting about these works of manuscript fiction is how their genre and their techniques and their methods kind of put lie to the idea that, oh, something is popular and then it just vanishes. No, it persists. People continue to read it. The physical books are still around mm -hmm. and people are continuing to imitate them in different kinds of ways. But yeah, this is a book with, with uh, fewer mysteries about uh, who it was for and the kind of why it was written, but lots of mysteries about who wrote it, you know, and maybe if we get to a sophisticated moment of handwriting analysis, and this is someone who appears in other archives and other kinds of ways, we might be able to find out who the hand is. Mm -hmm. But in many cases, these manuscripts arrive into collections and archives, kind of either very deeply immersed into the, the, the papers, the miscellaneous papers of the person. So we know a lot about the the author, or as these one-offs, right, um, where we don't have any kind of other information about the creator aside from what the text tells us about itself, which of course is not that dissimilar from the older manuscript tradition in some ways. <laughs> yeah. So are, are, do you have more? I do. So um, I'll take I'll take us to pen for just a brief moment. I like because, pen. Yeah, I like pen. I love the Kislak <laughs> Center. And the Kislak Center is an amazing place to do this kind of work. Um, there's lots of bits and pieces. And especially for this, someone who's trying to understand manuscript production more broadly, by looking at things where it's process papers, like the work of Sarah Burney, the sister of Francis Burney, there's some material there. So we can, you can kind of educate yourself in, you know, what is a draft designed for print versus these kinds of things that are designed to exist only for themselves. So I've, I learned a lot when I was over at Penn hanging out about different ways that, you know, the kind of physical composition might look depending on, you know, what the author th is intending for, for this draft or this piece of writing to become. And one of the things that I pulled is uh, from 1829 as a long 18th centuryist that's kind of nearer to the end of my period, although this project has taken me all the way to kind of 1900 and beyond. And it is not an original piece of fiction. So officially, it's outside of the scope of my manuscript fiction label, but it is a piece of fiction. It is uh, Madame de Stael's Corinne, or Italy, which was a super mega hit of the period just before. And what's interesting is the catalog description says, translated from the French of Madame de Stael Holstein by H.H. Henry Houghton Young, 1829. And indeed, I've compared Henry's translation with the other published translations of the time to see if this was just a copy paste sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it does not seem to be the case. This seems to be an original translation oh, done wow. by mm -hmm. Henry for just one person, Elizabeth Cundell, who he would marry the next year. Um, it was her birthday present. Oh my um, gosh. That's so real. I mean, I don't know the, I don't know the book, but it's a romantic idea that make a whole so, translation so it's a fascinating it's a fascinating little paradox it, it is a romantic book it is a book about the woman as artist corinne is the kind of is 
Corinna and Corinne become these kind of watchwords in the 19th century for the woman artist. Uh, mm-hmm. She is a gifted elocutionist. She is a muse to artists. We see her in the first scene of this novel, literally in a, a, this, this amazing tableau where she's crowned with laurel leaves, right? But she does not get the happy ending because she is mm. superhuman. But it is her love. It is in many ways her love story as seen through the eyes of the man who is in love with her and then kind of keeps it moving. So she's this larger than life romanticized figure. What it really is, I think, in Henry's hands is a kind of travel. It's a travelogue. Many people read it as a travelogue. Many people kind of used it as like a a kind of aspirational tour book. And Henry Mm -hmm. kind of doubles down on this. So he copies the whole thing by hand. It's three volumes. We know exactly how long it took him to do this because he has little dates of when he finishes each of the volumes and he finishes right under the gun, like days before her birthday. Oh my and it has taken him six months to do it. If my memory is, is serving. So he's a, tr- a gifted translator of other things. Uh, he's Baltimore born. He's a naturalized British subject. He had translated other things professionally, but this is just for her. And he has interleaved picture postcards, illustrations of the the places where Corinne oh goes. So uh-huh. and so and and images of De Stijl and images from the book um, and these sorts of things. But he has all of those bound in too. So you can mm-hmm. imagine him handing this to her and being like, "This could be our honeymoon, right? This is, you know, mm-hmm. here's a way to see these places, both in text and in image. And they're not all from one place. He's mm-hmm. clearly collected these from different places." And he's got a signed dedication to her in the beginning of the first volume. And it's another one of these beautiful ways that, you know, he could have bought a copy of Corinne anywhere. He could have bought a very elaborate copy of Corinne at this point. He could have, I mean, custom binding was still very common. He could have those kinds of you know, a kind of personalized print version, but there's something about that labor of the hand mm-hmm. that is part of the gift and the thing that is recorded. So she knows that he she, he spent all of this time doing this work, even if right. she doesn't have the ability like I do to say, oh, you did this translation. Uh, although she would, I'm sure she would have known he is a translator. This is a thing that he does. It's a beautiful little object. I do not have photos of that. That's Penn's problem. I can Her. get photos of that <laughs> <laughs> pretty easily. I can, yes, I can I do, do that because I want to see it. I want to, I want to see this now. This is just so, it's so delightful. It's manuscript 874. <laughs> 874. I got uh, it. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a really lovely and it, I'm glad I pulled it up, right? And this is the thing that you do in archives when you're studying this stuff is you go in and you might not be able to find anything that day, right? Because none of this is using what we call controlled vocabulary, right? If you're looking for a particular period of manuscripts from the medieval period, you either, first of all, know exactly what you're looking for there because Mm -hmm. everything has been laboriously documented, or at least you have vocabulary about the kind of thing that you might want to look for. All of this stuff that we're talking about today from the 18th and 19th century and beyond doesn't really have the same kind of richness of glossary that you can Mm -hmm. then tie to keywords that are in a 
uh, description. And sometimes these descriptions are erroneous. Um, I will... Uh, I have called out in print already the the beautiful, lovely human beings at the Rubenstein Library for a very long time. They took as gospel the description by the guy who sold them a manuscript who swore up and down that he was pretty sure it was by Jane Austen. And he has, and and his typescript pages of evidence are in the box with the manuscript. And most Mm -hmm. of it is Jane Austen had brothers named Charles and there are people named Charles in this manuscript. And it turns out, (laughs) no, one of my students was helping me transcribe it and put some names into Google search and found uh, the periodical that the whole thing was written in 50 years earlier. Um, This was a partial copy, which is fascinating in and of itself. We We checked the paper. So we know that there was a good 50 years between when this thing was in the newspapers and when somebody copied it down. Did Jane Austen do it? Absolutely not. She was dead. Did her sister do it? Nope. Mother? Nope. But someone did. And why did they do that 50 years later? And what does that tell us about the persistence of periodicals, right? Mm -hmm. In those kinds of ways. Yeah. And so, you know, these things become slant interesting. So I just rolled into an archive and I'm like, manuscript, unpublished, Uh uh, fiction, novel. I I just throw spaghetti at the wall because every every catalog works differently. The Houghton Mm -hmm. is different from Penn, is different from Yale. Yale's Beinecke is different from the Lewis Walpole Library. You know, you just you're doing testing all the time to kind of find this stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, it's been really fun uh, because I, I roll in thinking I maybe have one or two things. And then all of a sudden I'm looking at lots of other things. And it mm-hmm. also gives me an excuse to look at any manuscript because I want to see writer's process. So at the Houghton library, when I was on fellowship there, I pulled up the light princess, which is a great manuscript. Well, it's, it was published obviously uh, by George McDonald. But the surviving manuscript, McDonald turned into a huge scroll. Oh, my gosh. I have a video on Twitter, and I probably can re-unearth it. We laid out as as far as it would go on the reading room tables, which uh-huh. wasn't the full way. And then we did a little like video oh, like a- of what we mm-hmm. could see. And you can see oh, the tape, fun. the kind of tape. And I'm like, why did you yeah. do this? No one needed this. <laughs> I have so many questions, but here we are and I'm fascinated and, you know, I'm sure some days, I'm sure someone has written about it that's an actual 19th centuryist, but it was mm-hmm. fun to be like, oh yes, this is another way that people work with manuscripts in the age of print. They turn yep. them into big scrolls. Turn them into scrolls. It was, maybe he just thought it would be fun, you know? Yeah, I mean, it seems on brand. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. I do have one more manuscript. One um, more. All right, great. One more. I mean, I have, I have. At this point, we have, I think, over two hundred that are in the database that we're cleaning up. But uh, these are the, these are the treasures. These are the ones that are fun to tell stories about. Uh, and your favorites. One, yeah, and this one in the show notes, we'll be able to share, and you can take a look at the entire thing for this one because the New York Public Library worked with Auburn University at great expense to digitize the whole thing. Oh, wow. Um, All right. Yes. So, uh, and it was not cheap because it is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. It is called Reuben Rattle, The Younger Son, um, and it was published in 18 parts. 
a volume apart, small oh, wow. volume, between 1847 and 1848. It was a monthly, all by hand, oh um, starting in February of 1847. And it is, it the illustrations look like it's done by Boz. It looks Dickensian oh, um, wow. in this fascinating way. So it is lavishly illustrated. And it is, I'm actually really curious, and this is a project that I haven't done, but I think someone should do, which is take the illustrations and see if they're copies or kind of revamps. But they're hand done drawings, uh, some kind of half, like the first page of chapter one has Reuben Rattle in with like a kind of swirling motif. And then mm -hmm. we see a uh, the kind of front of a house with trees and a gate before chapter one, which introduces the Rattle family to the reader. And then a little tree right next to the start of the opening paragraph. And in fact, the ink is so heavy that the um, kind of recto and verso kind of compensate. So on one side of the page, you have this elaborate illustration and where that illustration has, has inked through the author oh. has chosen not to, to use that space as blank because it is, it, it is heavy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's this beautiful kind of picaresque novel of adventure. And on the very last pages of the last volume, the author, John Crispin, tells everyone this circulated to my family and friends over the last year and a half. It was not intended for publication. It is designed, you know, to be as part of this community. Um, mm -hmm. It's this incredibly lovely, but substantial. It's the longest thing, right? And it's this, it's an art project. Um, yeah. And we see on the the title page, Reuben Rattle, The Younger Son by John Crispin, with illustrations by the author. And then we see, you know, and it, it is the title page is entirely surrounded by little vignettes of people on stage, of duels, of people mm -hmm. toasting around a table, of little cupids writing in a book, you know, of a woman like slumped over a table, you know, all these little little s slices of, of, of life. And so it's a really fascinating snapshot of this very specific moment in time. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the few manuscripts in the collection where we get this sense of a community circulation. There's another example at Shotton House Library of a series of much smaller uh, manuscript periodicals in this kind of way, where on the back, it actually has a list of all of the people and their addresses and when it was supposed to get to each of the recipients in a kind of chain letter sort of fashion. This was my question is how, so if he only made one copy, then they were, which I presume is the case, he made one copy. And There's then one they, surviving copy, at least as far as I know. Yeah. And I, it feels like if it's a manuscript and it was a monthly, I can't imagine him I mean, maybe he just spent all day like making multiple copies. But then the idea is that he gives it to one person and they give it to someone else when they're done. And then it gets and then it gets passed around the community like that. Yeah. And then you yeah. manage to get them all back together again, which is, yeah. you know, which is actually really impressive. <laughs> right. Well, and, and you know, that either mean in theory, that could mean like it's a fairly 
like tight geographic reach. What was interesting about the Chotten case, where we know exactly mm-hmm. where everything went, it went up and down the length and breadth of England and oh, into wow. Scotland, uh, those uh-huh. particular family pieces, and they ca- came back together, um, yeah. which suggests that there's at least some kind of, there's at least a precedent for that kind of circulation. And we see kind of inside, you know, the work of John Howard Crispin, the eldest son of John Crispin. Mm-hmm. And we can see that it was held by his widow. Uh, so he does this, you know, fairly early on in his life, but his his widow retains it, Matilda. And then the New York Public Library gets it in 1965. So we don't have a whole lot in between, or at least the the official notes from the New York Public Library don't give us a chain in between, but that could just be because it stayed in the family until it was purchased by a dealer and then sold on. I always love a description that says, holograph novel in a style of contemporary books and parts, apparently unpublished, um, mm-hmm. with a quote from page 833 that says the accompanied pages were written solely for the amusement of a select circle of friends. The other possibility mm-hmm. is that this didn't physically circulate in quite that way, but was mm-hmm. part of the continuing extant oral tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Dickens read his work out loud for audiences. We know that the oral reach of fiction was substantial uh, in the 18th and into the 19th century. So it's possible that he just, you know, kind of showed off. It's a little small. They're the size of your of an of an average human adult palm, uh, about 18 centimeters high. It, it, would be, it would be hard to do that kind of show and tell, but not impossible. Um, right. So uh, there's some speculation. We don't have any apparatus that tells us, aside from that, t- the author attests to the fact that it circulated. You know exactly how that happened. Um, this is this is research that always has a little bit of oh wait how did that work oh well we can probably connect we we might have an example from somewhere else I think a lot about uh, Megan Rosenblum's dark archives when I mm-hmm. think about how to write about this uh, for those who do not know dark archives is a great book about the history of books that have been claimed to be bound by human skin and how mm-hmm. do you know that how do you test for that and in the case of that project. Many collections do not want the results of testing to be publicly known. And so it's a book that has to write about subjects where either this some specifics can't be known by the public, even if they're known privately. And of course, some holders of these books have refused to have them tested. And so you have to write without that piece of information in a very similar kind of way. Uh, mm-hmm. This is also trying to be a book that ultimately ends up being about the process of how do we understand more than we knew right. at the same time kind of acknowledging the limitations of what we what we can publicly know and what we can know at all because mm-hmm. these are pieces that have been historically devalued uh, their curiosities sometimes they're beautiful but as a collective have been un- ignored which means that we there's a lot that we don't know and there's a lot that we can't recover about uh, these manuscripts. But it's still, I love the, you know, the pro- the process. Process is so interesting for me. And so even just writing about how we go about it, even if we can't come to a definite conclusion. Yes. You know. Yeah. I mean, this is how human knowledge works. I mean, I think for mm-hmm. me, this is the project that uh, is most committed to the idea that I'm I'm 
not the first, but I'm one of the first and that people will be able to do more after me, hopefully by simply the act of identifying these things as, as a collective. Mm -hmm. And for me, this is, it's really important to talk about these things, which is why I'm on this podcast and I talk Mm -hmm. about this publicly (laughs) a lot is precisely because when you have words to describe something, then it makes it easier to find them. And that's both true for scholars, but also for the people who care for collections who might be able to say, oh, that's really interesting. That looks like something that I have in another Mm -hmm. collection. I've never really thought about it as being anything other than a curiosity that stands on its own. But when we bring these things together, we can start to say something more meaningful. For me, the most important yeah. audience is is the caretakers, is the folks mm-hmm. who have a responsibility of care to these kinds of documents. And hopefully I give them more stuff to work with and more ways to defend the value of the things that, that they're holding um, and also better ways to, you know, archival description, it should be noted, and cataloging is a really labor-intensive pain in the butt. Um, you're, uh, they're, they're imperfect human documents. They are not created by infallible robots. Um, and so we all, if we can, should help out with making those things better, um, you know, because we, we're all stronger collectively together which is another one of my like little hobby horses that I will ride until it falls out from under me, which is no time soon. Well, that's great. And ab- I sign off on everything that you just said. Hey. And I think that that's yay. And I think that that's actually a great, that's a great place to, to end, to end this. So thank you so much. This was really interesting. And um, I will get links and photos for you to put in the show notes. So we'll have a nice post to go along with it. And I will, I'm sure I will see you on Twitter. Yay. I don't see you anywhere else. (laughs) As long as Twitter survives. Maybe it will even still be there by the time this podcast airs. Um, And I'll put your Twitter name on the. Yeah. If if Twitter does not survive, and if you're interested in very specifically this material and this part of my research, you can follow me on Instagram at Manuscript Fiction. And I also hold the domain manuscriptfiction.org. So you can find all of this stuff as we work on it there. Excellent. All right. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, and there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.